And welcome to the Behind the DM screen for summer 2015. Yeah, we're cramming in three months or two months or something worth of gaming. Mash in the whole summer because busy schedules kept us from recording in a timely manner. So, you know, we'll, it's still going to be an hour-long episode or 45 minutes or what have you, but, uh, but we're going we're gonna to talk about a vast span of time and games, maybe. Uh, okay, and we're going to start with Andy. Andy, are you ready? I am ready. All right, you're going. Okay. Um, well, the Tome Show has received an email from an individual named Matthew, and I thought we'd talk about that. Uh, let me Sounds read it good. to you guys. It says, Recently, my group decided to change the type of game we play. Rather than playing the same characters in the same system for many years, my players and I will be switching systems and characters every few months. The games will all take place in the same world, but each time we switch systems and characters, the world's timeline will advance five months or a year or five years or something. I'm really excited to do things like show off the effects of previous PCs' actions, reintroducing NPCs, and even have old PCs come back, either as NPCs or as PCs again. The one thing that concerns me now is not being an expert in the new systems. I was wondering if you can think of any other opportunities or pitfalls this type of game may bring up. Thank you so much, Matthew. So what do we think of Matthew's email? Well, I appreciate that that uh, he sent that in. I um I've actually done that. I my my game setting actually spans uh several different editions of Dungeons and Dragons and Castles and Crusades. So, uh I you know, I played along, or I ran along 4th edition campaign in one particular time period of the setting. The previous iteration of that setting that occurred several hundred years before the 4th edition campaign was actually set in a 2nd slash 3rd edition uh, game. And uh, then I ran a campaign actually after that, but in basic D&D, that was the 11 Pillars campaign that I recently ran last year, and that actually, I, I used basic D&D, and it was in a different time period of that world. The, and now I'm actually, I run a Castles and Crusades game in that world. And the really fun thing about that is one thing that he mentioned in, in his email was because I update the setting document every time and I add, like, new little things or I take away things that haven't happened yet, you know, depending on where they are in the timeline – um, and one of the things is that if you have a, something like an adventuring company or you have this massive worldwide event or this, this massive continent-changing event, it's in that document. And I keep a running tally of, you know, rulers and their history. And, I mean, I'm not talking like pages and pages, just a few lines each, right? And so what happens is often at least one or two of the players or the whole adventuring company gets mentioned in that particular document. And so if any of the players carry over, and as they often do, because I have a long-standing group, they get to read about, you know, oh, look, look what's in here. But it might be slightly changed. So here's the thing. This is the, what's fun about it is as the DM, you can totally mess with your players because you can change what actually happened just slightly, just enough to sort of niggle at them, right? Because, you know, this is the lore of the world. It doesn't mean that's actually what happened exactly. So it could be that someone who didn't hardly take part in the thing at all or who didn't play a very big part in the thing 
has a lot of fame because of it, um, which is different from maybe what the players experienced during the campaign or vice versa, right? Someone who had a, you know, did a whole bunch doesn't get a lot of credit for the things that they did. Uh, and so that you can kind of string those things in and, and you can have a descendant of that person be met by the current party and maybe they want someone to get their fame back or, you know, there, there's all sorts of things you can do with that. So that's really fun. Um, what I want to say to his concern is don't worry about it. I mean, I agree you, with you, that. Yeah. You know, you're, you're going to run the game. If you run a lot of games, I, I run a lot of games and I run a lot of very similar games. So the versions of D and D, uh, things like 13th age, um, you know, castles and crusades, different retro clone type games like labyrinth Lord and stuff like that. Basic D and D, um, they're, they all have their – and 5th edition I run as well. You know, they all have their differences and similarities. And there's going to be some overlap there, and you're going to make mistakes, and you're going to think about something, one, you know, from the way it was done in one system, and you're going to accidentally do it that way a couple of times in, in the new system right after you switch. But who cares? I mean, honestly, it, it shouldn't be that big a deal. Your job is to make sure that you're having fun and that your players are having fun. Um, and, you know, if you make a couple of rules mistakes, big deal. That's okay. There's there's nothing wrong with that. You but the way to deal with that then, or the way I deal with it now, there's many ways you could deal with. It. The way I deal with it is, I let my ruling stand, um, and then I talk about it at the beginning of the next session and say, okay, well, remember this happened in the last session, and here here is the incident, here's the situation, and I ruled X Y Z, but it turns out that in this system that would be done a little bit differently. So going forward. Here's how we're going to do that. Just so that everybody's on the same page and we know that, here's how that's going to work from now on. Um, and then, you know, no harm, no foul. Same, but you, get, you have to be able to give the same leeway to your players. So if you're playing a game that relies on a lot of system mastery, like third edition or or something like that, then you need to give them a little leeway with learning their different powers and abilities and feats and, and, and learning the rules of the new system. Give them leeway with that too. And, you know, people are going to make mistakes, but who cares about that? It's going to be fun either way. Yeah, and I'd certainly say there, there's also a lot of different choices out there now. I mean, even mm -hmm. before, you know, all the different editions of D&D, &D, the, the um, Pathfinder, the 13th Age, and even now, um, you know, the similar world could be run with uh, the new Fantasy Age system from Green Ronin mm -hmm. and the Cypher system even from um, Monaco Games. It One thing... Not to step on Mike, if Mike wanted to say something, but uh, one thing that could be different. I know, sorry. <laughs> one, <things> to say. <laughs> one thing that could be different is if you move from something that's sort of more traditional class-based fantasy to something that's more narrative-based, like a fate system or dungeon world, an, an apocalypse, engine, apocalypse world engine game. Um, it's still doable, but... Um, in Apocalypse World or Dungeon World, for example, uh, there are a lot of ways to let the players um, contribute in world building. And if you're if you're the type of GM or DM who's running a, a more sort of traditional GM creates the world, players play around in the world, but they don't really, you know, they don't really affect the world a great deal. They don't create things in the world other than their own PCs' actions. Uh, moving to a system like Fate or Apocalypse World might mess with your head a little bit, um, and you're going to have to just accept that and, and have a little leeway with that. And 
moving also to one of those types of systems is a little bit more difficult than moving from one traditional class-based type of fantasy to another traditional class-based type of fantasy game. Um, in that, in those cases, it's hard because the mechanics are very similar, but not exactly the same. So you're more likely to make small mistakes, but moving from a situation where you're going from like a D and D or a pathfinder into a fate or an, a dungeon world, then you're talking about some major mechanical differences and that transition will be a little more difficult, I think. And what you might want to do in that case is run a very short get-to-know-you session. Um, and it's not really get-to-know-you. It's more like get-to-know-the-system and let the players uh, make some PCs and fiddle around with it for a couple of hours in ways that are non-threatening. Like, this isn't going to be their PC for the rest of the campaign unless they really like it. And they can change things or they can move things or they can pull levers and press buttons and not worry about consequences so much just to get to know how the dice work and how the system works. Uh, so I recommend that if you're moving to vastly different systems. But either way, my first comment still stands. Who cares if you get some things wrong? Your job is to have fun. Yeah, and I'd also say stick maybe to the generic systems. You know, instead of doing the Dragon Age role-playing game, do the Fantasy Age. Instead of doing Numenera, do the Cypher. Because mm-hmm. um, you get to the specific ones, and, and it can ta- it can take a lot of work to separate, you know, the game itself from the campaign world to adapt it to your own campaign world. Right. Um, my other my other comment will lead right into I'm sure a comment that Mike Shea might have, and that is. Um, make sure that you don't spend a ton of time prepping for a game in a new system that you don't really have to spend. You know, so look look on this website called slyflourish.com, and they have this little lazy DM guide. And you might want to pick up that thing and get some tips out of there on how to prep wisely. Because the thing is, if you're going to move to a new system, you're using the same world. So you don't really need to translate a whole lot of things. But some things will have to be translated, probably. Don't sit and spend all your time just doing those translation stat changes or what have you. Spend your time prepping the session just like normal. And don't worry about major changes. Because you're not, you know, you, you're, you're not going to want to spend 80 hours updating, so to speak, your campaign setting for this new game when, you know, they're only going to be playing in a little tiny, small portion of the playground. And I would say um, stuff like monster stats and stuff may very wildly vary between systems, but I would say just pick kind of a power level you're aiming for and then grab the stats and reskin it. So, you know, maybe the goblins in your world are are powerful, but in the game that... uh, the game that you decide to choose to play, they're not powerful in the stats. So just pick a higher stat of monster and reskin it as a goblin. Mm-hmm. Mike Shea, what do you have to say for yourself? Uh, a, f- a bunch of things. <laughs> Being patient and quiet. Yep. Um, so I, I think that uh, it's it it can kind of be a missed opportunity. I mean, for you know what Andy brought up is right. You're better off using the if you want to stay in the same setting, but switch systems, then you're better off trying, uh, you know, using the generic system, Cypher system and Fantasy Age and, uh, you know, Fate and things of that nature. Um, I, you know, personally, I think it's a mistake to try to use different systems in the same world. Uh, I don't know. Let me rephrase. I don't think it's a mistake. I mean, everybody runs their own game however they want. I don't think it's something I would want to do. And it's not something I would want to do because, to me, 
one of the ways to make an entire game feel different is to switch both the system and the world at the same time. Uh, you know, I think, you know, like, for me, Numenera and the Cypher system are tied pretty closely together. The Cypher system started with Numenera. So to, you know, try to, uh, you know, take the Cypher system and use it in a, in a different campaign world, you're missing out on all the opportunity to try out Numenera. Um, you know, same is true with Dungeon World. I think I think a lot of times the systems have a particular; they're designed around a particular feeling for a game. You know, Numenera, the Cipher system, works well in an exploratory, whimsical kind of you know very wide range science fiction, you know, fantasy sort of game like Numenera, where you know the gritty dungeon grinding sort of uh, feeling of Dungeon World fits well when you're playing that kind of game. And, you know, you can do either with the other, I'm sure. Um, but I think it's, I think, you know, for me, it's a missed, it, w- it would feel like a missed opportunity to try both a new system and a new campaign. In other words, if you're going to bother to change systems, yeah, change on a re- on a, then you might as well change campaign right. settings. Right. Uh, give, I may... give your setting a rest or something. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah. yeah, maybe. And, and you know, the, I mean, I, so I, I believe heavily in the idea of sort of episodic, episodic campaigns, these sort of mini campaigns. Um, you know, I ran a giant fourth edition campaign that went from level one to 30 and that was great. It took four years or three years or something like that. And then we did a ton of separate ones. I wrote them all down while we were talking here. I did a Shadowfell campaign, a Gardmore Abbey campaign, a Dark Sun campaign, two different 13th age campaigns, a Baldur's Gate campaign, a Pathfinder campaign, a bunch of level 30 fourth edition, you know, go kill the big boss monster. Um, you know, so I ran a whole bunch over the next couple of years until fifth came out, and now I'm doing another big fifth campaign that's like going to probably last, you know, a little over a year, fourteen or fifteen months, uh, and will probably go one to twenty. I'll talk about that later. Um, and so, but I love the idea of like doing these four month, you know, three month or four month or six month mini campaigns, you know, even less. I'm one of the things I'm going to try to do when we're done with our campaign now is I'm going to try to sneak Numenera in because I got that beautiful Numenera box set. And I'm so I really jealous. oh, it's so beautiful. But I, I, I got I, one of I those too. That much. Mm. I, I wish I know, played it more. I, I had bid for that in the Kickstarter and then I had to pull it out because I read oh, it. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's gorgeous. And uh you know I opened it and it's better than anything I've seen from any other RPG company. You know, I've never seen a single product that's got all this kind of stuff in there and I want to run it. And for me, it would be like, I kind of wish no other RPG existed. So I'd, I'd have to play this one for four years, but you know, all these other ones exist and, and I kind of like them, you know, system wise, I like them a little bit better. Um, but I'm going to try to sneak it in as like a four, a four week game uh, in between fifth edition games. Um, I think and Andy, I think, or no, um, Sam, you mentioned, yeah. That uh, you know, it can be a big leap to go from like fifth edition D and D to Fate. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, you know, but one of the things I, I I know I have trouble with is when I switch systems that are similar. Like if I go through a couple different D twenty systems, the nuances of the rules throw mm-hmm. me off. Right. Well, and, that's why I said you're more likely to actually make minutia mechanics mistakes if you yes. choose two two closely related systems right, right but if right. you choose ones that are vastly at. different yeah then it's you're not going to make as many system mistakes but you might have a little shock if you were expecting sure. it to play like your yeah. uh, other yeah. systems that you and i think that has, yeah that has to be cleared and agreed upon mm-hmm. right by, by all the players coming to the table i get the feeling what what they're trying to do uh, i.e experience different systems i i think is there's a bigger benefit to going to systems that are a lot different. If, I mean, if you just go through all the D20 yeah, systems, right. 
there's not a lot of differences right. there in the grand scheme. Yeah, we got real caught up on small stuff with, uh, you know, a all the different D and D next play tests, and then Thirteenth Age, and then Pathfinder, and then D and D Fifth. You know, we're just like, wait, can we can we delay? I can't remember if we can delay. <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. small yeah. stupid things. Or yeah. And then one last thing, I, I know my time's up, that I'd like to say, um, uh, back to Mike's point that um, you know, if you're going to set it in the same world every time, you're you're just going to cut out entire games like uh, Edge of the Empire. I hear is a, a really good rule system, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but that is so tied to Star Wars that right. you. You're going to spend your life trying to convert it to your own your own worlds. So, well, you know, at the beginning of this, I mentioned that there were several benefits to keeping it in the same world because you get this sort of pleasure of of pre- people who were previously PCs are now either in the you know the sort of bardic lore section of the world or or they're actually NPCs or whatever, depending on how much you change the timeline. See, for me, when I switched. Uh, systems, I would change the timeline. I pulled a Watsi, basically. I changed the timeline because the thing is that the way that I present the game and the way that the game is is meant to be, or meant to be, or the way the, the way the system is Im- implied that the game should work changes based on the system you're playing. You know, fourth edition D and D is vastly different from basic D and D. So the type of game that I played in that setting in fourth edition D and D was very different from the type of game that I played when I was playing basic D and D, but in the same world. So you know, there is something to be said ab- about that because it's it's an interesting way to investigate how other systems play in the same world with the same sort of assumptions about how things happen in the world um but yeah i mean i i do agree that there seems like it feels like there's a missed opportunity if you if you're gonna bother to switch systems to say torchbearer which is a fantastically different game um but it's still a dungeon delving kind of game that's going to give you a very different feel than than fourth edition D or fifth edition D or basic D or pathfinder um and it's almost a missed opportunity to to make it have to conform to your current world. But, you know, it really depends on the group. So the, the thing that Mike's talking about, switching like or doing things in between other your regular game, like or switching up and doing like a three session or four session little mini campaign. I do that, too, because I like to keep myself fresh. So I run a Deadlands Reloaded campaign. I run a, a, a Firefly campaign. I I played in a um in a Star Wars Edge of the Empire campaign, you know, so I try to stay fresh just because it keeps my mind working and I can pull different ideas and different little mechanical bits and in- integrate them into my games the way that I run whatever game it is that I'm playing. Um, but, you know, if you're if you're really just switching systems to get your toes wet and to su- sort of see how these other systems work, I guess it depends. I, I kind of agree with Mike. It depends on what your focus is, though. If your focus really is to just say, hey, I'm done playing this system for a while. I want to investigate other systems, but I want to have a comfort zone that is my own setting, then stay there. But if the idea is really to test out the other systems, then you should maybe open up to other systems and their default settings. Because then you'll get, to, you'll get to see how it plays in the sort of setting that it is really meant to be played in. And that's not to say you can't. You could always take, you know, some PC, you know, from a previous game and mm-hmm. make them part of the history of the current world. You know, right. kind of. You know, you know maybe they, game. Yeah. maybe they weren't a paladin. Maybe they were a Jedi. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know that they had a similar adventure and and the and the their stories about them that are similar that will recall the the PC's previous actions. Yeah. 
Mikey, any last thoughts on that? Our time was up a couple minutes ago, but nope. this is kind of a triple topic, so uh, Andy's not really talking about his own game. We're just sort of talking about this issue, but... Right. Um, I mean, I, so, you know, it's an interesting thing to do, but you have to kind of be careful because I have a player in, in one of my groups that really likes the reward that he gets from being a really good player in a particular system, and every time we change games... He, like, has a really hard time. And his fun level goes way down for a while. Um, so that might be a caveat to watch for that because uh, something that may sound new and fresh and it's exciting to you and, and maybe a few of the other players might really be onerous for someone who is very comfortable and doesn't want to get out of their comfort zone. So just be watchful of that. Uh, thank you, Matthew. That was a very interesting email for us to. Yes, uh, thank you for thank you for writing in. We appreciate that. And if anybody else wants to write in and, and ask questions and whatnot, uh, please do so. We would love to take time from talking about our own stuff and talk about your stuff for a while, because you know it ends up t- being talking about our stuff anyway, right? Because that's what you talk about. You talk about from your position of what your what your experience and what your point of view is. So, yeah. And uh, next up is Mike Shea, 15 minutes on the clock. Go. All right. Um, so I've been primarily running two games with a bunch of other little side games. Um, the main one has been my Rise of Tiamat game. Uh, I've gone completely off the rails. I got an email. So I had, I'd written a bunch of articles about Horde of the Dragon Queen, and I get regular emails and tweets saying, hey, you're going to do Rise of Tiamat. And I'm like, I don't know what good it would do you because I'm <laughs> not running the adventure. Not really. Mm-hmm. Like it has the same title, and that's pretty right. much it. Um, so, for example, my group has been one of the main villains in uh, Horde of the Dragon Queen, and I guess in a little bit in the Rise of Tiamat is a red wizard, uh, ex red uh, uh, wizard named uh, Rath Modar, and he escaped in um, my campaign, and uh, now he's become like a major villain. I've kind of billed him as the architect of rising tiamat like he's the guy that actually knows how to do it he told the dragon cold how to do it and you know he's also notoriously hard to get a hold of because he has piles of simulacrums that he sent all over the sword coast so Mm. the parties fought him like four or five times at one point they fought three of him at once and uh they want to kill him really bad so a bunch of red wizards went to him and said we kind of want him dead too because he's not really one of us and and he's kind of a dick so we would, you know, we'd like you to go after him, and we'll tell you where he actually is, and that's in a place known as the Doom Vaults. And the Doom Vaults, if you recall, is actually the main dungeon from an adventure called Dead and Fae that was released uh, before fourth edi- or fifth edition came out. Uh, it was one of the encounter seasons. Uh, wasn't it? Was that from? Um, that was the the Sundering yes. Part Three or something? Scourge of part, the Scourge part Coast, two right? Slash three. Yeah. Right, yes, that was the one where they were scourge, supposed to have three yeah. adventures and they only had two, right, and right. Dead and Day was, was one yeah, of them. Okay. Yeah, and uh, yeah, as part of the Sundering, it's kind of, you know, not great. It was kind of, mm-hmm. you know, shoehorned in. Um, and even as an adventure for low-level PCs, it, 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 it isn't fantastic. But boy, is it an awesome high-level dungeon. 
because it's just packed with flavor. It's huge. There's well, all these kind of inter- interconnections. Isn't that the one where uh, there's like a forest area, and it's, then there's like the area right. with all the pigs, and there's yep. the area with the yep. gelatinous cubes, and yep. or not or fungus or something? Yeah, there's yeah, a place yeah, called yeah. like the Gollum Creek, you know, the Gollum yeah. Forge. And there's like an yeah. ooze, there's an ooze pool place. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, so I, 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 I kind of came up with this little, you know, the the red, and it was unfortunate in the last session that like the red wizards took like 45 minutes to tell them, you know, how this place works. Because it's so complicated, and it's like you know, there's a, I, I got rid of the white gates. It's got white gates and black gates, and that's mm-hmm. supposed to limit different groups to different areas. But I said I'm going to get rid of white gates and just have black gates. And the main idea is that Rathmodar hid himself. He's in a phylactery, or he, he has a phylactery or something, in the phylactery vault, which is like in the center of the. It's not even attached to the to the dungeon, but the only way to get to it is through uh, the doom vaults, and the doom vaults. Don't let anybody teleport in or out normally, but they have their own teleportation network called the Black Gates. And if you can break the Black Gates, you can actually pierce through them and get to parts that you shouldn't be able to get to with different keys. So the party has to go into the Doom Vaults, capture keys to the Black Gates, use the keys to destroy Black Gates, and pierce in deeper and deeper until eventually they get to the Flactory Vault. And the nice thing there is I, I really don't know how many black gates they have to destroy. I'll just have them destroy so many until we get bored and it's time for them to hit them. <laughs> you know, hopefully they're yep. not listening to this. Um, but, yeah, they like the, 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 the red wizards, the three red wizards they met are like, yeah, we don't know. <laughs> just start destroying them and eventually they'll get through. Um, so it's, it's kind of a neat high-level dungeon crawl. You know, I had this sort of idea in my head. There was one great scene, I, I you know. It's always great when I run it. But there was a great scene where they were in the yawning portal and they're like having to deal with all of these like major problems. Like, you know, Erlanthar got kidnapped by vampires and, you know, the dragons are gathering a great army somewhere, but they don't know where, you know, all these problems that are like Sword Coast eating problems. And then they look over and here's this group of adventurers that's coming up from Undermountain. And and everyone's like cheering them on, and they hold up three giant dead rats that they killed, <laughs> and, and everyone's toasting them, and everyone's patting them on the back, and they're telling the story about how a ghoul attacked them and how they almost all died, but they wiped out the ghoul, and and the party's like, how come we don't get to do that anymore? Like, you know, we have to handle all these stupid problems no one even knows about, about you know, armies of dragons that are going to summon the queen of dragons and kill everybody, and our you know main contact got kidnapped and all this stuff. And these three, you know, these yutzes come out of the yawning portal looking like heroes because they killed three giant rats. So, you know, so one of the, one of the things was you guys going to the doom vault is the equivalent of them going to the undermountain. You know, like it is an Uber dungeon for you guys. You know, it is super, super powerful, super hard. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, very tricky to, to, to operate. Um, the, tr- the 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 problem I'm running into with that is I I I'm 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 not I can't decide whether or not I want to go the full level range to twenty or not. Um, I think that at this point they've ignored the white dragon mask holder long enough that he's no longer anywhere in the north. Like he he's you know he's not sitting there in the dungeon waiting for them. He's now on the back of the big white dragon. Mm-hmm. And he's flying around doing stuff. So they're gonna have to go get a hold of him. And then I'm thinking of having him go straight to the finale by going to the Well of Dragons. Uh, I'm going to steal some stuff from the Neverwinter MMO and have these guys called the Heralds, which are like all ancient dragons of each of the colors. Mm-hmm. And they're going to have to beat all of them. And then they go to the Temple of Tiamat, and then they fight Tiamat in our plane. And that should get them roughly to level 18. 
And then I'm thinking that they might have to go down into hell to keep her trapped. That, like, if they really want to stop it, they can't do it in this plane. They have to go down there and do it. And the quest NPC for that is going to be Asmodeus, right? Mm -hmm. Who tells them, hey, she's still free down here. You know, if you really want to stop her, you got to come down here and trap her for good. And you get, you know, I don't even know what that means yet. Like, some giant mm -hmm. in hell. Mm -hmm. Con, you're going to have to come down here yourself. Right. So they actually, I kind of, I kind of have this vision that after they beat, the avatar of Tiamat in the prime plane, you know, they have to dive into the well <laughs> right after her, right? you know, to show up in hell and, and do a couple levels down there. And that way I could actually see like, what does a true one to 20 campaign look like in fifth edition? Uh, it'd be kind of a nice bookend to the one to 30 campaign I ran in fourth. Uh, but then there's also part of me that's like, you know, I've been running this campaign forever and I kind of want to stop and do something new. <laughs> mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. so that's, that's where I'm currently stuck. Uh, I'm not going to talk about my Princes of the Apocalypse game. Um, that's my weekend game, and uh, mm -hmm. they just finished the four Haunted Keeps, and I'm, I've got like one or two things left for them, and then we're going to be done, and then switch over to the new Out of the Abyss once that comes up. Mm -hmm. But what are your thoughts about, you know, the big conclusion of Rise of Tiamat? Well, I mean, I, I'm not sure I would have them go into hell and and do it. I, I think. If I was running the game for as long as you have been, I'm kind of like you. I would be ready to be done. Mm -hmm. And if they if they stopped her from from coming out, then you know, hey, if she's free down there in in, in you know in the abyss or whatever, and or if she if she's on one of the nine layers and she's bugging Asmodeus and he can send his own lackeys to go you know get her. Well, yeah, there's so. an interesting <laughs> sorry, there's an interesting thing which is one of our characters was killed by a beholder. Beholders, by the way, in fifth edition are really nasty. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of our characters, a warlock, was killed by a beholder. And part of his story, which the the player came up with, is he was previously tied to the Fae. And when he died, that connection broke, and the person who picked that connection back up was Asmodeus. Mm. So now he's a good mm. guy doing good guy stuff, and Asmodeus is like, "Yeah, I've got lots of good people that work for me." Hmm. You know, like just because I'm a, 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 a devil lord doesn't right. mean I don't have good people working for me too. And you're one of them. So there's actually a hook where Asmodeus could say, "Yeah, you are my lackeys." <laughs> right? mm. Like, yeah, yeah, you, know, you owe me, <laughs> and I want you to come down here. You you just threw her back in my world, and that sucks. So you got to come down here and clean it up. So there is a there's yeah. a hook for it. Yeah. There's a hook. I, I don't know that I, I I mean, you know that's something that you're gonna have to gauge when you get. Like I could never make that decision at this point. Like I, you'd have to gauge that at the end. Right. You know, just because it, getting to 18th, it I like as a player I'd be like, oh, but I'm so close. But if mm -hmm. this really feels like the natural end to the campaign, who cares if I get the other two levels? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like rather than you know. I, because you run this risk of either whatever you do to get from 18 to 20 feels tacked on, mm -hmm. or you're too burnt out to make it really what it should be, or the players are just done. Like, they don't, you know. Right, Like, right. Uh, it's just, oh, we're only doing this to get to 20 so we can say we did it. It's like, uh, well, that's not really, yeah, I don't know. And yeah. My, my group's uh, right at the transition point between the two books, and, and I'm already feeling kind of that way myself, is that it? want to kind of find a, a quick exit to get them to the end and <laughs> yeah there's there's not a good quick exit to fight tmf <laughs> mm -hmm. but I mean, we had a lot I, of fun I've, stuff and they, I, you know I, a lot of the things i threw in there they enjoyed they had a whole like vampire theater in Waterdeep that they had to climb mm -hmm. through in order to get you know rescue erlanthar and you know 
a bunch of other little side quests. They went back to the Mirror Dead Men and went into the uh, uh, went into an old uh, Dragon Cult temple and fought uh, Ebon Death the Dracolich. So there's been a lot of neat things that I added in. And I, I've actually set it up where um, where uh, they don't necessarily have to fight the the Dragon Queen because uh, the the group that I have standing in for the Red Wizards is actually playing the Cult of the Dragon like a like a dog and basically making them do all the dirty work of collecting uh, riches so that they can wage a war. Right. Hmm. And, and that, you know, I, I think I could easily say that, it, and I've already said it, that the deities do not come to the world. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, that that's maybe something that's just simply not possible, and the, the Cult of the Dragon is just being played, but they're the ones that are out there doing all, all the bad stuff, mm-hmm. thinking that they're going to reach this goal. Yeah, I, I always had this this great idea that I wanted it to turn out that uh, Horde of the Dragon Queen was a giant Ponzi scheme. <laughs> there, there was, they weren't. They just wanted the money. Like, there was no way they were going to summon Tiamat. They're just you know getting all these rich people to back their cult and took all their money, left them high and dry. I always thought that'd be a fun idea, but that's probably a little too. Well, I, I think the reason that fails on a meta level is because the horde in the books is not as big as what it would be if it actually was a Ponzi scheme. Right. Yeah. Right. That was pretty big, if I recall. Eh, it wasn't that big. Hmm. In, in my estimation, the the queen of, of dragons would not have some paltry... Normal, I never understood my money would bring her normal. out anyway. Yeah, well, that's... Yeah, of <laughs> course. Of course. Yeah. Because it's about level of of worship and sacrifice, yeah, I right? guess. Yeah. yeah, cash, yeah, old hard cash, yeah. Um, which, which uh, I think is what led me down the, the path that I was going. Mm-hmm. Is that you? What's the money going to do for him? <laughs> yeah, right. It'll be interesting to see how I tune Tiamat to fight him too. I'm still not sure how I'm going to do that. I think as written, Tiamat would still kill them. Um, yeah. and then you know, I'll have to read the book again and figure out which which sort of disadvantages she t- should have. And I'll have a pretty good idea from, you know, how my players are, are kind of tuned. So it'll be a good fight for them. Um, yeah. And then my, my hope is to try to slide in a four, a four session Numenera game in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, just cause I'd, I'd like, I'd like to try it out a little bit more than one shots. Numenera is actually not a great one shot system. Uh, you know, but I don't, yeah. I don't think I can convince my group to play a long, a long session. A long campaign. Well, you, you have me on board if I lived anywhere near you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got I got the reliquary box uh, last yeah, week as well. Crazy, it crazy is good. the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Yeah. So yeah. I mean the the production values on this are yeah, like beyond anything I've seen. Yeah, they're they're just it, it's amazing. It's literally amazing what they put into this box. Yeah, yeah. So that's great. Now I got to go sell my book. Yeah, I have a book too, but I'm going to keep it because I know that not all the players in my group will buy one, so I'll I'll just yeah. have one as the sort of table yeah. book, and I'll have my. Yeah, see, I have a player's guide on top of that too. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. I've got plenty of yeah. those. See, I I never I didn't back the original. Yeah. Um. So when I bought the book, I just bought the hardcover rule book, and that's the only other thing I have. But then when the reliquary box went up, I was like, okay, I got to have that. Right. So. Yeah, but. Uh, it's I I haven't decided if I'm gonna like the system or not. I, I I've decided that upon reading it, I don't you know. I, it doesn't seem like it's gonna be like 
a system that I really super enjoy. Um, but I feel like, yeah, I feel like I can't really say that until I play it at least two or three times. So I'm, I'm trying to withhold judgment, but just everything I've read and different things I've seen and, and, uh, and Rob Donahue's awesome analysis of the game. I just, you know, I, it just, I just know myself and I know my style, but Mm -hmm. like I said, you know, sometimes things read differently than they play. And so Mm -hmm. I want to give it, you know, a chance to play it. Yeah, there's, so I've, I've played it a bunch, uh, mostly at conventions and one shot Mm -hmm. things. And um, there's one kind of house rule that they wrote into the book that I highly recommend, which is that you separate the experience you gain The experience you pick up ad hoc during the adventure is separate from the experience that would level you. And that Mm -hmm. way you don't have to make this choice of do I want to re-roll, roll, or get closer to leveling. Right. Uh, Which is kind of how the system works now. The other thing, which there is no good way to house rule, and I think kind of hurts. And um, my wife, wife, for example, isn't really crazy about it because of this, um, is that you have to sacrifice sacrifice the, the, the equivalent of hit points in order to do special moves. Right. Um, and that there's no good way to handle that. And people who are risk adverse and, and really don't like the idea that like, you know, in order for me to lower an attack roll, I have to spend hit points and then I might still lose and still take damage. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, that that's, it's a punishing system for that. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's, that's unfortunate. Um, yeah. Because risk averse people will almost always do the analysis and decide it's not worth it. Yeah, there, there are some cases when you're doing it with edge, you know, that it's not edges their mm-hmm. way of kind of reducing the cost yeah. to, to lower it where it's, you know, it's not so bad. But it becomes um, a, a very painful cost benefit yeah. analysis every time. Yeah. And it's unfortunate. Like I, there, there's this there's this feeling there's, there's a way that the emotion he was he was very particular about kind of the emotion of a role and making sure you did all your negotiation for what the role was before you rolled the die. And mm-hmm. then that way, you know, if it was high, you were happy. And if it was low, you were sad. It wasn't like you roll and then do this big negotiation to figure out whether you succeeded or not. Mm-hmm. And the only problem is that you will spend points to try to lower a difficulty and then roll and roll really high and feel bad that you spent all those points. Right, like you wasted it. Yeah, like yeah. I should have I not mm-hmm. rolled, added anything and I'd have been sitting on points. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think those are relatively minor quips. Right. Um, and I still, the, the problem is I love all the rest of it. Mm-hmm, so I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm kind of willing to I'm willing to live with it. And I'm hoping players are, too, um, you know, to give it a go. I just want to mm-hmm. I want to give that box a good run. Yeah. Well, I'll play it as written before I. Yeah. House rules, yeah. of course. Yeah. So. That's a good idea. Yeah. yeah. The only the experience one is the only one that I mm-hmm. you know, that, that I, I might that I might do right away. Yeah, but I've never had yeah. to do it because I've yeah. never run a game where it mattered. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would just level them when they when you want and then right. give them the XP as, as you know, reroll tokens yeah um and that one's not really a house rule because it's written in there that you can do it that way mm-hmm. and it's really mm-hmm. easy to do yeah um but i don't know a good way to fix anything else and yeah like you i wouldn't i wouldn't try to house rule it yeah um okay so my clock is ticking this is sam um so here's the thing i'm running three games right now so i'm gonna talk just briefly about uh, all three of them two of them more than the other and i'm gonna stay under my 15 minutes because if i go over my wife will kill me Um, so my first game is the one that I talked most extensively about last time, and that is the uh, Castles and Crusades Planescape game, where Sigil broke in half, Mm -hmm. and you guys were asking me what was going to happen, and I decided what was going to happen. 
So I want to tell you guys what what's happening, and and I'm I'm not really going to talk about nitty gritties, but I you know you guys can give me your reactions and and you know give me ideas about where you think I should go uh, otherwise, because I, I have this other question that I that I want to get answered. So here's what's going to happen: I've decided that half of sigil is going to stay sigil, the half with the ladies' ward in it is going to stay sigil, mm-hmm. even though the Davis are gone, so there's nobody repairing anything over there. Uh, so it's still there's still some issues. Um, the other half is now turning into actively being replaced with the city of brass. Hmm. So, um, because hmm. none of the players that I'm playing with have ever done anything in the city of brass or anything like it. So mm-hmm. I think it'd be really cool to have this struggle between, you know, the, the Ifrit who are, who are ruling the city of brass, who also, you know, the city of brass is, is, has lots of portals as well. Um, so that's also bringing the plane of fire closer to the spire that, that sits below, uh, the, the, you know, the outlands of, of sigil, um, or the plane of, plane of fire will be there and that spire comes up from the, you know, from the outlands and then sigil sits above it. So now, you know, half of that's going to be completely scorched because the plane of fire is there. Mm. Um, and so there's going to be the city of brass thing is the city of brass is really high level, (laughs) um, Mm. and they're not all that high level just yet. So there's going to be a lot of a sort of side things and individual things going on uh, in between that. So there's not going to be a lot happening in the city of brass for right now, but here's my thing. There is this, this is my question for you guys. And, and, you know, just to brainstorm this, there is a, a concept in the planescape setting and the concept is the, the rule of threes. Yeah, right. And that is everything comes in threes. There's there's like two mage concepts. There's there's like the unity of rings where everything is a ring, uh, and then there's the rule of threes. And so here's my problem. Now sigil is cut in half. There's a sigil and there's a city of brass, but there's mm-hmm. a rule of three. So what's the mm-hmm. third what's the third portion? Yeah, what if it, what if it wasn't in half? What if it was in thirds? Well, and it might, that's what I'm saying. Like it might, it's right. actively, you know, they're, they're sort of off on a different plane taking care of something right now. So I can actively evolve it and they'll have to discover it when they get back. Cause they're there in the end of the last session that we had, they were stepping back and they finally got to the area where they could get to the portal to get back to sigil. So they're about to get back to sigil, but they're not quite going to find the sigil that they thought they had. Right. Oh, City of Brass, that's another planescape setting or? City. No, City of Brass is an elemental plane of fire, I think, yeah. right? Yeah, City City of Brass is the uh, capital city of the Afridi Empire, um, right. and it's 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 on the elemental plane of fire. It hasn't ever really been well developed in a D and D setting, except in Second Edition in the Alcadim setting. There was this supplement called the uh, what is it? Something Genies of the Lamp or something like that. It's actually written by Wolfgang Bauer, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it it talked about the city of brass and it it was set in in a city of brass type place, and in fact in the city of brass part of it was happening in the city of brass. Um, and I have that on PDF, but I haven't actually read it. But also Necromancer Games did this really awesome third edition city of brass box set, mm-hmm. which is ba- I mean it's a box set, but it's basically like three big thick books and a map booklet. So. Um, there's a lot of things on the city of brass and fourth edition. Actually, I like the way they did the city of brass because it comes with a really nice map. Um, so there's a lot of things going on that I could pull in from this. So the issue is not really the city of brass. City of brass is just this really molten area. It's surrounded by a lake of lava and it's this sort of citadel type place. So there's walls all around. There's only ports in a couple of places. And so it's a really very different from sigil, which 
is basically very open with a ton of portals, and if as long as you know the key, you can get in and out. Well, City of Brass is like, here are these really high-level Efreet and genies and all kinds of different weird slaves and different things going on. There's mm-hmm. a definite caste system. There's a really strong hierarchy. So Sigil itself has all these factions. Well, the City of Brass also kind of has factions, but it's very different. So there's going to be a lot of uh, uh, tension there. Um, not least of which because, you know, the, just the elemental plane of fire now is shifting. So everything else will shift around it. Um, mm-hmm. but what do I make the third part? Is, is there a corollary in, in the, um, in the elemental plane of water? Um, yeah, but the problem with that is then it makes it all about fire versus water and sigil gets kind of mm-hmm. left behind. So like I it's trapped in the middle. Well, no, it's cause it's a ring. So it'll, it oh, would be, it'd be a third. It's not really. But so, mm, yeah, the thing is that the uh, the plane of water is ruled by, um, who are the water genies? Is that Dao? No. Uh, I don't know. Uh, no, no, no. Um, I'm drawing a blank. Um, it flew out of my head. But, um. I only yeah, know so. the elemental princess. Yeah. <laughs> but what's another sort of iconic humongous city that could be suddenly transported there. Hmm. Sigil is City of Doors, right? Yep. Yeah. It's, it's another it's yeah, other planier cities. Astral cities. I know I never did a lot with the planes, so I I can't think of much. Is there anything in Planescape besides Sigil? Oh, there's a ton of stuff. I mean I just don't I haven't run across one that I really that really like talks to me and yeah so this one probably is not the greatest but um what's the big shadowfell city oh uh, uh gloomrot yeah Ooh. so you know the nice oh. thing about gloomrot is it's very different than everything else and yeah. it has this idea of sort of being a lost city and it's got crazy princes and it's got weird people hanging out if you have that do you have that fourth edition gloomrot oh, yeah. on yeah 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 so that's got a lot of good... I ran a campaign in Gloomrot, and it was a lot of fun. Oh, that's really That's where my, my PCs woke up dead. They woke up in a charnel pit being dug up after five years dead, and they didn't know how they got there. And I didn't know how they got there. That was half the fun. Um, yeah, interesting. But that's a nice kind of city. And it would be one of those things where, like, they're so kind of... Everybody's so kind of depressed there anyway that for them to be ripped and torn and thrown into this other place, they wouldn't care. Yeah, like, yeah. Like, ah, whatever. Hmm. The problem is Gloomrot doesn't have sort of that 50-year D&D history. Yeah, I don't care about that. Nobody cares yeah, about really, that. Yeah, it's kind of a newer place. But if nobody cares, then that might yeah, be Yeah, my, my players don't care. In fact, the, the reason, one of the reasons to pull, to use Planescape, actually, what, it, it was twofold. One of my players really wanted to play a Planescape campaign, really wanted to be in Sigil and be able to go to different places and, and know, he wanted to, you know talk the the planescape chant language and all that kind of crap mm-hmm. um but none of the other yeah. players know anything about it right so right. they're really confused so he was a he's a, a planer and they're all primes and so they were really confused so we spent like an entire session where they were just like they didn't know what the hell was going on but two of those players really kind of like a more traditional fantasy setting so mm-hmm. the other benefit that using planescape has is that they can always hop to a different plane Mm-hmm. And they can, ha- I can run a, run a few levels for them of just a standard kind of fantasy. You know, one, one of the things I'm going to do is they're going to do a, a piece of uh, Gardmore Abbey. 
Yeah. Um, they're going to get thrown in there because Gardmore Abbey has this really great ability to have portals in it that, that makes sense with that whole story, but also with with the sigil thing going on. Yeah. So, I don't remember the portals in Gardmore Abbey. Well, no, it just it's just because uh, because I won't throw a deck of many things in there. Instead, it can be different portal things going on. So yeah, I mean, I'm changing it greatly, of course, but mm-hmm. but I can use Gardmore as the basis because Gardmore is just a fantastic adventure. Right. Um, and therefore, it has the more sort of traditional. They, they're going to have a few levels of traditional stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but Gloomrot, that's a really great idea. I hadn't thought of that. I like that. I might have to do that. Cool. Yeah, that's. Thank you. That's really good. Um, so I have two other games, uh, mm-hmm. and so one of them is my fifth edition game that I TPK'd last week. Oh no. Um, so they might. They're not going to end up Things in Gloomrot, like... but they're they're basically they were in a shrine of of uh, of. Torog. They don't know it's Torog though. All they see is the symbol, and they're not from this area, and they don't. None of them know anything about it. Um, even the cleric does, because this is they're in the lower lands. This is my Eleven Pillars campaign, so they're in the lower lands in a place they've never ever been before. They find this shrine, and they end up getting TPK'd, unfortunately, um, mm-hmm. for a variety of reasons, which we can talk about next time. Um, but um, so they so they died. Um, but the thing is that because it's a shrine of Torog, I gave them the option to continue this campaign with these PCs, even though they've just basically gotten captured. Um, because Torog is the god of torture from the Underdark. And so right. his thing is, he sometimes sends raiding parties up to the surface, because he can't go up to the surface, to get slaves for him and pull pull them down so that he can put them in his torture chamber and, sh- and torture them for you know his own pleasure or whatever, because he's an evil... I thought he's the he's tortured. He, but, he, but he has these three... Uh, primary areas that are his living areas that are torture chambers where uh, he has slavers come in and, and torture others so that they may become thralls of his and then know his his anguish that he also yes he is the king that was is tortured right he's the king that right. calls so um i really like torog he's one of the only sort of new kind of gods that mm-hmm. came out of fourth edition and i really liked i really liked what they said about him not least uh not least which because i really like the underdark but i hate the fact that it's overrun with drow and every time you talk about Underdark, everybody just assumes Drow. And I right. thought Torog was a great addition to that sort of area because it That's doesn't. not Drow. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't preclude Drow, but it doesn't actually evoke Drow either. So, um, mm-hmm. anyway, so they're in the shrine to Torog and they don't know it, but they get TPK'd. So. Mm-hmm. I gave them the option to either start a new campaign, but at third level with fifth edition, um, or in the same setting, but not with these same characters, or start a whole new campaign, different setting, what do you guys want to do, or start a whole new game uh, of some other system. They still want to do fifth edition, and they really want to play these characters. They really like these characters, and they're just starting to work together. So so I'm basically going to do it such that they're not actually dead. Right. and because <laughs> you know how, how else can I do it? So they're not dead. They're going to wake up in a in a torture chamber. So I I might sort of have this area where Gloomrot has a portal to one of Torog's uh, little torture chamber areas, and so when they escape, mm-hmm. they're going to find themselves in Gloomrot and have to work their way back up to the surface. Mm-hmm. So I'm not quite sure that's going to happen yet, but uh, but maybe. So it's funny that I was thinking about that, but I hadn't connected Gloomrot to Sigil. Oh, so you're already thinking so, Gloomrot. Yeah, really interesting oh, thing. So, um, and generally the way I run my games, everything's like connected. See, this is why that question was so fun for me earlier because um, I – I, my sort of universe is all connected, so all of this is happening in the same universe in my mind. And so, you know, if some of my players are playing on one setting and some are on a different setting or a planar thing or whatever, it's all still happening in the same kind of 
you know, umbrella universe. So it mm-hmm. can all be connected with no problems, you know, so. Um, but then there's there's one other game that I have. It's a Castles and Crusades game that I'm also playing in that setting, but in a, starting in a different pillar. Uh, and they're investigating some stuff. And this group is really, really fun. I've only got a couple minutes left, so I don't get to talk a great deal about it. But uh, this group is really, really fun. They are probably the most fun in terms of uh, role-playing antics that I've ever run a game for over Skype. Um, and we're doing everything mapless because Castles and Crusades, it's easy to do mapless. And basically, we're running this game, and, and so I just want to talk about one funny moment. Um, they go into this town, and there's some weird stuff happening in this town, and they and they walk in, and they go into this, um, into this uh, weapon shop. Mm-hmm. And they go into the weapon shop, and I describe it to them, and it's got all these really nice, beautiful swords on the walls, and it's got this um, this big banner up uh, in front of the counter, and it says, like, Corellian's, you know, swordsmith, whatever, and that's actually a chain of swordsmiths owned by the Corellian family, which is a, a PC from a different game I ran in the same world, and... Um, and so one of the characters knows immediately, oh, this is a chain, this is a really prestigious, like sword shop and whatever so they're really all like oh wow you know they're looking around and then the the um blacksmith comes out and i describe him as this really huge guy he's like really really muscular but he's he's not muscular like in the top of his arms and his biceps he's got like huge forearms Hmm. but we were playing on skype and one of the one of the players actually um thought i said he's got four arms not huge forearms and at first I was like, no, forearms. And, of course, everybody's laughing. And then I decided, you know yep, what? He does. He's got four arms. Yep. So so now this world, this section of the world, has turned into kind of this weird, like, Lovecraftian thing because then I had to have an explanation of how he got four arms because he had they had asked him, have you always had four arms? And I just off the cuff said, no, this happened recently. And they wanted to know what it was. And so now that's becoming part of the adventure that they're, they're doing. But so that's the kind of thing that, uh, and the players just go with it and it's, it's a great deal of fun. And my time is up. Um, and so I want to talk more about that game next time because I think it might be over by next time. And then I can talk about it extensively. Because uh, mm-hmm. it was meant to be, it was it was one of those that was meant to be a short session or a short a short sort of campaign. So we're probably going to end with the sixth or seventh session. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that might be that might be ending soon. Uh, but it turns out they're in this little town and they feel like there's some weird Lovecrafty and some some kind of magic has taken over or something's going on that's very very strange. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, this in this particular campaign, I've allowed a lot of magic items and I'm I'm I've done a lot of homebrew magic items. So um, you know, I, I've got a lot of like, uh, the, uh, different weird things that they're doing, but also this, the reason, the whole reason I want to talk about this, is because one of the things that this campaign has made me do ha- has been to really, uh, flesh out this part of the setting. And I, and, and in turn, it makes me flesh out the rest of the setting because they asked me things like, you know, because there are no horses up in the mountain lands. So what, are, well, what do the characters ride then if they want to ride, you know, what is a night ride? And, you know, what are the histories of, you know, these, and there's two wizarding schools and what do these wizarding schools do? And it's led to a couple of different posts on my website and lots of different good conversations and all that. So uh, if anybody from that group is listening, I just want to thank you because that is an extremely fun group. It's probably one of the most fun groups I've ever had over VOIP. That's great. Um, Yeah. So not that my other groups aren't fun, of course, you know what I mean, but just playing a game over VOIP has its own challenges and a lot of times the the um, 
the chemistry is 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 uh, it's not that it's not there it's just that it's intermittent Mm -hmm. And this group is the most consistently fun group over over Skype or over VOIP that I that I've ever had. So thank you guys. <laughs> um, and that was it. My time was up a couple minutes ago, and I stopped the timer. So um, any last thoughts from either of you? Nope. All right. Well, everybody. A fourth and game. Yeah. 